You're listening to the Better Future Podcast. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Dream by Design, and today I'm talking with Mario Puccini, the Chief Design Officer of PepsiCo. Mara and I have a conversation where we talk about how does design work in the boardroom, how does it work building culture inside organisations, and how do we make things that delight people, how do we make things that are made for people. We spend a bit of time also having a look at the learnings that Mara has built up over his career on how do you create momentum and how do you co-opt co-conspirators on the journey to becoming driven by design. And here we are at PepsiCo with Maris. Hi, Maris. Give me your name and number. Hello. Mauro Porcini. I'm the Chief Design Officer of PepsiCo. Now, Mara, I love when you say your name because I've got this shocking Australian accent. And I know we caught up with Matteo Bologna. And Matteo, he stopped us for about five minutes till we got his name right, yeah? So, so we're going to have a conversation here about the fact that PepsiCo is now for, you know, for the last four or five years, we've been seeing the momentum that's been built up in the company. And that momentum is that you're working on repackaging products, you're working on on new ways to market, new options that are coming into the market. But that really started when you came into the fold here. And I think that may have started even in your previous role when you were at 3M. So how about you help me out with, because we, we, listeners, we always have a pre-conversation and I've had shared with me that there may have been some of the learnings and the attitude that came from your era when you were working at 3M that then actually you got to actually do as another take and another version of that here at PepsiCo. So help me understand what was that special formula that you think that you'd done version one of and then you got a chance to do version two of here? Well, uh, you know, the role of a chief design officer, of a leader uh, of design uh, in any organization is not just the one of doing projects, running projects, um, but is also the one of building the right culture inside the organization to enable those projects to exist first uh, and then to succeed within the organization and then in the market. So I spent 10 years in 3M, in my previous life, in my previous company, trying to build a culture of design uh, inside the big American tech-driven multinational corporation and understanding very quickly that design was not just about design. Who cares about design at the end of the day? Uh, design is about is meaningful to a company when... Uh, is an asset, is a way of thinking, is a culture, is a community, is the merge of all of these things to support the company, to support what the company uh, is doing. And, you know, the goal of a company is to grow the business. uh, And there are two main pillars to grow the business. One is uh, building brands and supporting these brands. And the other a pillar is what we call innovation. So innovate in what you do every time. So uh, design needs to find uh, its way to support brand building and innovation in a way that is meaningful to the company. And so in, in, uh, it's key for us designers to find a way to integrate what we do in the way of working of the company. And I 
realize that every time you try to integrate a new culture inside an existing established culture of a of an organization uh, you um, you face a series of challenges and there are specific phases that once again looking back at the time of 3m I identified the first one is what uh, I call the phase of denial so the company doesn't understand that they need something new that new culture then at a certain point somebody in the company understand realize that there is some value in doing things differently in the new culture and so this person the most of the time is the ceo or is somebody at the very top of the company with enough power uh, and resources to to change things this person decide to uh, inject something new inside the organization it could be uh, an executive of 3M deciding to hire Mauro, hire a designer, and inject a designer inside the system. And in, there is this second phase where, uh, you know, I remember in 3M, I was taking my suitcase from Italy, I was based in Milan, I will go to Minnesota, to the headquarter of this big corporation, and I was having all these meetings with a variety of different business leaders and R&D leaders, and the meetings were going very well. I, you know, I thought at least that they were going very well. One hour meeting, having fun, talking about, you know, how to grow the business with design, and everybody was very nice to me. Uh, I know today that probably the vast majority of the times, as soon as I was stepping out of the meeting room, everybody was like, okay, fun is over. Now let's go back to real business. Go back to business, yeah. <laughs> this is the phase that I call the phase of the hidden rejection. When you think you're getting traction, but in reality, you're not at all. There is a, an executive vice president of uh, 3M back then. Now he retired. Uh, he was the EVP of the consumer business. His name is Monozari. Once... I remember after those meetings in Minnesota, once I went to his office and I told him, you know, Mo, it's fantastic. You know, the, the, I'm getting so much traction and everybody want to invest in design and they love it. And, and Mo looks at me and is like, they're lying. I'm like, no, but they're not lying. I mean, they're really, you know, they're lying. And he told me, until they write a check to you, they're lying because they do have resources. And if they're not putting money down, if they're not giving those resources to you, it means that they may like you, they may like what you say to them, but they're putting that money, their bets somewhere else. That was for me a turning point. It really changed my life, uh, you know, in 3M and later on in PepsiCo because that strategy to put people in a corner and really tell them, okay, do you really believe in me? If you do, you need to invest in what I'm saying. It helps you really to identify the real partners, the, the real believers, and the one that are not, you know, and to avoid also, you know, passive aggressive behaviors or Minnesota nice behaviors in the case <laughs> of Minneapolis. So, you know, and this takes you to the third phase. When you find somebody that is willing to invest on you, you you have that phase that I call the occasional leap of faith. So you find certain individuals that decide to do something different with you. They bet on you. Those individuals, I, I call them the co-conspirators. Those are people that somehow, for a variety of different reasons, decide that they want to do things differently than their predecessors or 
different than anything was done before uh, in the company. Uh, with time, we also found ways to actually um, identify them to, you know, there are specific kind of profiles of co-conspirators. For instance, once again, when somebody takes a position, you know, the new vice president of a business, the new manager of a business, uh, usually they want to do something different than their predecessor. So usually I am in their office the day of the announcement proposing, you know, how to do things differently, leveraging design, leveraging what we can offer. So those are some of the most typical co-conspirators. There are a variety of others. But when I came to PepsiCo, we, I remember with HR, we started to map the different co-conspirators inside the organization because they are the best partners to build the proof points. And the proof points are really, really important because once you start to land some interesting projects, some projects that are relevant to the company, that show the value of the new culture, then everything becomes very easy because everybody then want to be part of it. They want to invest in it. They say that failure is an orphan and success has many fathers. You know, so, and they just want to jump on board then, don't they? Yeah. they it's like, because, oh, I love those behaviors because they're reasonably simple to go and identify, as you talked about, and they're very repeatable. And you can almost bank on them. You say, if we do this and you see success is down this corridor, you'll come down that corridor. If you think lower yield is down a different corridor, you're not going to go there. And it's it's how do you build the momentum to to demonstrate that? Yeah. 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 And then and 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 that's really important. I mean, you say that magic word, momentum. So once you find those individuals, you find the those projects that have, where eventually you you don't do everything right, but it's good enough to show value that builds momentum inside the organization. That's when other parts of the company are like, well, you know, they, we see value there. We want to do more of this, and this is what leads you then to the fourth phase, you know, in this uh, journey. Uh, and it's what I call the quest for confidence is when the organization is like, well, you know, we see value in design. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious there is value. We want to now integrate it inside the company. So it's easy to have at the certain point, the right vision, the right idea, understanding that that new culture is actually creating value. But then at that point, you face the day-to-day. -day. You need to integrate the new approach into something that the company was already doing eventually, but in a different way. As a design function and organization, we started to step on the toes of R&D, of marketing, of consumer insights. And so how to build the perfect connection with those functions, the perfect integration. This is where, for instance, having an internal design function is extremely important. Uh, it's very difficult to do design in a company just working with external partners. You need an internal design organization to build the right culture inside the company, the right processes. And, and often, you know, even if you still want to work with external partners, to become the connector, the facilitator, making sure that that good idea that you can generate in-house or with a partner, find its way all the way to the market uh, overcoming all the roadblocks that are part of the innovation process. Uh, time to market, cost, manufacturability. Uh, there is also consumer research, interpretation of data, and so on and so forth. 
So the quest for confidence, building the confidence inside the organization that what you're doing is the right thing to do is key. And that leads you then to the fifth phase and then we stop. I know I talk a lot. The fifth phase uh, is what I call the holistic awareness. Is when you really understand, you know, the new culture is part of your way of work, you know, your way of thinking and the company uh, is, is successful in, in leveraging that kind of culture. So, so what, and, and it's been fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. But we're over 10 minutes into this podcast and we could actually be doing a corporate culture behavioral change podcast, not a design podcast. And I think for our listeners, that's probably the most important thing that they realize is the success that you've had in doing a particular discipline was because you understood organizational development, organizational culture. Without understanding those cultural factors, you would have just been the nice guy who wore stylish clothes and had some fun ideas. And that, I think, is something that's not taught at design school, that people aren't taught that it's actually about bringing people along. So many people in the design industry try to break through. And I know in, um, in the first series of Design the Boardroom, we had Debbie Millman um, who was doing a session with us. And the three of us, when we were in the session on the interview, all of us did this huge eye roll about the idea of we want a seat at the table. What would you do if you had a seat at the table? What would that mean? Because the designers often think that it's actually about some colour or something that's on style. It's actually about organisation culture. It's about solving things. It has to solve the consumer's need. It also has to solve the organisation's need, which is about shareholder return. It's about brand equity. It's about market penetration. It's about the suitability. You know, there's a lot of factors that have nothing to do with style. And, I th- and I'm really pleased to, to see that we've been able to go and kick off without getting stuck behind the style problem and actually talking about organisations and solve in there. But all of the work that you do has oodles of, you know, an immense amount of style in it. So so I, I don't want any of the listeners to think that it's actually we don't value style, but it's it's like the maraschino cherry at the top of, uh, of the cake there. You've got to have all the other ingredients in place or it's not going to come together. So I'm interested in... One of the big challenges for uh, a food services company and a foods brand company is that there's packaging on everything that you've got. And there's and, and, and it's not wasted on me the fact that 3M as a material science-based company who may or may not have been a major supplier of PepsiCo, but bringing that knowledge across of what is possible, what are the alternative mediums that are out there to be wrapped around wrapped around food services or food goods? You've got some major projects, which are, I think twenty twenty five is a, is a deadline for you for changing all of your packaging. You've also got uh, that you've jumped on board with several initiatives with some of your market competitors, so that you can actually change packaging models that are in the marketplace, reuse, reusable packaging collection. That's not the sexy part of the business, but it's necessary to be market appropriate and keep the social license. So how does that fit in on trying to get that proposition to excite people's imaginations? Because they're very different sorts of considerations to something which is about a new branding, new market share. How did you tackle that beast? Well, um, you know, first of all, 
you use a word sexy that is a word that I love and I hate in the meantime. I think sexy or or pleasing, engaging, you know, beautiful um, is something that can be leveraged uh, for the right purpose. It's been leveraged in history of humanity uh, in a variety of different ways. This idea of beauty or sexiness uh, is a powerful tool to move people. And then once again, unfortunately, you can use it in a bad way, you can use it in a good way. You know, right now, the company has a very clear purpose. We had it for many years and now our new CEO, Ramon Laguarta, is doubling down on this. And, and this is the purpose of being as sustainable as possible within the constraints that the current society, the current world uh, are giving us. And so uh, I think the sexy and beautiful actually could be leveraged and should be leveraged to drive this as much as possible. Now, in general, we have uh, a need and a responsibility to try to create uh, an ecosystem of products that is as sustainable as possible for our planet. We're doing it in, variety, in a variety of different things. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have as designers inside this company is that we don't control all the variables. You know, I can't force people to drink uh, in, in uh, uh, using a dispenser that we have in our system or using one of our reusable bottles, for instance, the Drinkfinity brand or using our SodaStream platform. You know, I wish, you know, we could really move the world to change behavior from night to day, but unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, you know, they are free to do uh, whatever they want to do. So uh, it's a very complex kind of situation where we need to create the best possible sustainable solutions. Once again, Drinkfinity, these reusable bottles that you fill with tap water and you have pods to add different kinds of flavors and functional ingredients is an example of one of our uh, brands and projects that we're driving uh, in that direction. So the stream is another one. So you have solutions where you don't use plastic bottles, you don't use any kind of uh, bottle that you are not going to reuse. Then there is a material um, uh, um, goal. And so by 2025, we want to use 35% of our uh, recycled PT in our, in our uh, portfolio. Uh, we're trying to uh, leverage a variety of different alterna alternative uh, materials as much as we can. Something we need to remember is that we are not a plastic company. We're a food and beverage company. If we could sell food and beverage without any kind of container, we would do it. We are not in the plastic business. So, and, uh, you know, the goals that we have are also linked to the availability of the material from our suppliers. For instance, you know, the recycled plastic is not that available. So there are limits in the quantity and we need to really have people recycling as much as possible. And the, here comes another effort we can have is the effort of educating as much as possible the society to recycle. So, 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 so I want to just pull up there for a moment because you were saying that you, you, you can't change their behaviours, but you can definitely make a proposition that means that it's a very small step to go from the existing behaviour to a beneficial behaviour. 
And so I think that's that's a very interesting thing that I've observed that's that's going on. The idea that in college campuses that you can go from traditional soda pop product into flavored water product with lower um, lower sugar, lower cal- calorific loads in them means there's an option. But if you don't invest in the option and you create that next generation opportunity, that's never going to happen. If you don't create the idea of the Drinkfinity bottle and so that people then have an option to say, I want some flavor in my reusable bottle, it's never going to happen. And so there's a certain amount of making it acceptable, normalized, cool, sexy. You know, there's a whole range of different values that people have. But putting in the hard effort to go and make those propositions available I think is very interesting. And there's, and there's something I've noticed out of several Italian designers that I know, that the idea of a proposition seems to be at the core of the way that Italian designers think about things. And I'm not sure that's the same for, for say, German, American, French designers. I'm not seeing the same thing. So there's this proposition part that's coming out from, from your background. There's creating options using technologies to go do that because that's pretty important there, which then means that you're more likely to get people to make a better future decision, something that's going to be a, a better step for the planet. But you're right, we can't change it, but we certainly can make it very desirable. And so that to me is where design is actually able to go do all of the experiences, but it's still the communications people who have to create that expectation and help to push people in the right direction. And and, and that's a very interesting dynamic of how those two work. I mean, and look, we, we work also in communication. We, we partner with our own marketing communication teams. But what I'm saying is that it's much broader than these companies. There is a, lo- a role for the government. There is a role for... Uh, the education system. There is a role for families um, and especially considering new generations. Uh, you know, as baby boomers, Gen X, we are used to eat in a certain way, to drink in a certain way, to consume in general. Forget even food and beverage because uh, the sustainability problem is much bigger, unfortunately, than food and beverage. We behave in a certain way in this society. We are surrounded by plastic everywhere, in the shoes that we wear, in the clothes that we wear, in the cars that we drive. Even the electric cars are full of plastic. I mean, it's, we are surrounded. It's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a broad problem that we have in this society. So it all starts with a different kind of behavior and the new generations could grow up behaving differently from the beginning. So it won't be a sacrifice or an effort for them because it's going to be just the way it is. And that's really where, once again, schools, families have a fantastic you know, role and it's a beautiful opportunity to change things in a relatively fast way it will you know it will take few years but you know things can really change another thing i'm seeing is that the situation today is so different than just two years ago and four years ago and six years ago you know if i look up i look back at when i started in pepsico about seven years ago and today 
there is a huge difference in the behavior of people in the food and beverage industry. Uh, we launched Drinkfinity three years ago and we just redesigned it uh, recently. Uh, but the attention, the, the engagement with the product that people are having today in social media, you know, I share it in my different social media platforms, the reaction is just fantastic. But I tell you, if you go back in my social media, I made the same post two years ago, three years ago, and nobody even noticed it because it was not Pepsi or because it was not, you know, one of the glamorous brands that we have in our portfolio. It's crazy how things are changing fast. And this is beautiful and so, you know, And so what, what I really like then from, uh, say, a leadership group and boardroom perspective, you've got your bases loaded. You know, it's uh, one of the interesting things for a company like a 3M or a Microsoft is they've got near market technologies and then they've got their skunk works technologies that you don't hear about. But they're working, you know, there's more PhDs working at Microsoft than anywhere in the world. And they're making sure that they've got that innovation to come through so that when the market needs it, it's a lot closer for them. Their distance from this could be a thing into turning into a product, products very small. And I, and I see that same thing going on you know, here at PepsiCo. What does interest me is I, I want to go back a few years to when you went to Milan because I've seen what's happened as far as the number of staff that you've got. And I think your first real challenge was working out how to sell PepsiCo as a company that was great for designers who wanted to accelerate their careers. I saw you head off to Milan with some fantastic work, which I think was done by Studio Italia, was it? Well, we had multiple. Multiple. Designs. Okay, so I particularly remember remember their work. But you went off to Milano, and there you were, and it was like, what the hell is PepsiCo doing at Milano? But you've got some great designers that work for you now. That branding exercise of the positioning worked really well. So before you went to Milano, and now team size. How much has it changed? Is it twice the size, three times the size? Oh, it's much bigger. We started with Indra. Uh, our CEO back then gave me the possibility, the resources to hire about 10, 15 people, more or less. Today we have about 250 people. So it's much bigger, the organization. What we did in Milan was not just to attract talents. It was not just PR. Um, it was a way to show a vision to our own organization, to our customers. We brought to Milan many of our customers, uh, executive level um, customers, and, and we were really able to start a conversation with them that create over the years so much value for both us and them and so many more projects and things that we did together. Um, it, you know, I think one of the reasons why uh, designers and really, you know, amazingly talented designers are joining our organization is that uh, you have the possibility to have a real concrete impact in the world, touching the life of billions of people. You know, the scale of this company and the way somehow we impact the life of people uh, every day uh, is something uh, I think really inspiring for many if the company give you the possibility to do your job, to be, you know, the desi a designer in the right way, you know, in, in, uh, and, and 
And it's beautiful because when you work in an agency, often you have these great ideas and then you give them to the company and the company butchers them, you know, kills them for a variety of different reasons. When you are inside a company, you can have those ideas and then take them all the way to market and making sh- make sure that they actually succeed in market. And when, you know, once again, thinking about my past at 3M, there was a beautiful presentation that we were using, a deck created by our R&D organization, where they were talking about those ideas. You know, there are so many good ideas in the world. And often people call those ideas innovation. You know, you talk to an, a- to an agency or a university and they have this, all this innovation. And then they give them to these corporations and the corporations don't get them. And, you know, they, they don't understand, you know, those ideas and they kill them in the process. And the reality is that those ideas, that's not innovation. That's an invention. Innovation is when you are able to take that, that idea, that invention, all the way to market. When you're able to really overcome all those manufacturability problems or, you know, once again, we talked about this earlier, timing, uh, cost, uh, what, you know, the risk that you need to take on some of these ideas, the risk on your company, on yourself as a leader. So when you are able to arrive to market with that idea and be successful with that idea, that's innovation. And that's the beauty of working in, within a company that empower you to do your work is that you can manage all those, you know, roadblocks. You can take the right compromise, the right trade-offs to arrive with the best possible idea in market to be successful. And that's, you know, I think why many, many talented designers are joining us today. And so I want to talk then about three concepts because they joined together to me. Empathy, talent, and acceleration. And I think if you get that, that combination right... By having good empathy-based team members who have incredible talent that you're going to accelerate the company. But that's hard to measure. And, you know, it's a, and I think, the, you know, particularly throughout the podcast series, what we've been finding is measurement concepts are problematic. And so it's even forced me as I've been looking at Driven by Design. We've got a 2025 roadmap. We know what we're doing. And now the whole conversation I have with partners is, help us to do that in 2023. And it's purposeful that I'm, what I'm selling to them is acceleration concepts. Your support turns into an accelerated outcome. Because to me, that's the problem. I've seen your talks about great talent. So I've got to have empathy. I've got to have the talent there. But how do you remind the organization that if we didn't have that great talent, it would take three years longer? I think that metric is one of the key ones that we need to sort out because otherwise we don't understand why we've got top talent. Yeah, I, I think acceleration is one of the dimensions that we consider in general. I've been working for many years now on, on the ROI of design or the value that design generates in these companies. And, you know, I arrived to this conclusion, first of all, the only real value that you should measure is your impact on the top line, the bottom line, market share, the business metrics. Now, the first misunderstanding, though, when you do that, is that you try to measure the impact of a specific project or a specific product, when in reality, you should measure the impact of the overall initiative is the entire ecosystem, is product, is communication, is experience over multiple years across the entire portfolio. I'll, I'll give you an example. 
I may do uh, some premium uh, experiences for Pepsi that generate zero revenue, but have a halo effect on the overall portfolio and make me sell more Pepsi, even if I didn't touch yet the design of the product, still is value, uh, you know, but you cannot measure just those projects that we did, you know, on the on the top of the pyramid, you know, of, 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 of the Pepsi brand, uh, you, you should have an holistic approach to, to, to the value that is generated. In the meantime, uh, you cannot think that you do design just in specific areas of the business and that's enough uh, to create value for the business. You start somewhere and then step by step, you need, you need to touch every touch point and you, have a, you need to have a very holistic approach to the business. Imagine if Apple was just designing an amazing iPhone and everything else, the experience in the store, the package and the communication wouldn't be aligned to that. So, so the, my first point is the business value is the most important thing and it needs to be measured across the entire portfolio and over time. But then there are a variety of soft values that are extremely important. And then we, we listed, I listed already at the time of 3M, I used it here in PepsiCo. The first one is customer engagement. So how you leverage design to engage the customers, meaning for us that means the retailers, uh, the restaurants, the hospitality world, so the, the people that sell, the organizations that sell our products. The second one is consumer engagement. So how you engage with your consumers and it's easy to monitor because just by uh, doing social listening, looking at the way they talk about your brands in social media, you, you immediately start to feel and perceive the change in engagement. And then there are other, you know, data-driven uh, tools and metrics that you can use. Uh, then there is the impact on the reputation of the company, the way the media, the opinion leaders, and a variety of other uh, entities out there are talking about your company, including customers and shareholders. Uh, then there is the impact on your strategy. So if you start to use design as a strategic asset and a strategic function to define the strategy of the company, and really steer the direction of the company, where the company is going, that's an amazing value and is extremely important. So I want to dig into that particular point because similar to understanding how to measure how much you accelerated, how do we get there sooner? How do we help those opinion, opinion makers and the blockers inside organizations to understand that design is about solving and accelerating business outcomes, not about styling. And that to me is like that's such key messaging because it's it's hard to sell into the organization across the board the leverage opportunity because we keep having people still talking about style-led design, not solve-led design. So, uh, you know, I'll, yes, this is a, such a smart point and a very important one. Um, first of all, even going, you know, back to the list I was giving you, and there were a few more points, even that the company will start asking you to prove your value. And I remember at the time already at 3M, while I was putting together all these metrics, at a certain point, they stop asking you because they start experiencing it. So they don't need that anymore for themselves. The CEO doesn't need it anymore. The company doesn't need it anymore. They see it and they want to have more of this. 
but, but they still needed to tell the story outside of the company, to the shareholders, to the media, uh, to the world, uh, or eventually to convince the people that are not convinced yet. And the best way to do that is through best practices, to, to case studies. Uh, and so even when, you know, now going back to your question, when you're building this inside the organization, when you're not there yet, the truth is that you need to find a way to get as fast as possible to the creation of proof points. You know, we go back to those five phases I was talking about. Uh, that third phase, when you start to have those leap of faith, you find the co-conspirators and you start to be the proof points, that's key because you can talk forever about what design does. People won't understand, won't believe you. Even when they understand you, they won't believe you until you prove that you can do it. At that point, it becomes obvious to everybody and they want to have more of this. But this literally, you know, we always talk, you know, when you think about, you talk and you think about design thinking, this connection between empathy, strategy, and prototyping. The prototyping is a key component of our culture. The idea of prototype, you know, ideas. And this is true in the way you design and you innovate and using prototyping as a tool for thinking and to prove idea and validate idea and tweak those ideas all the way to market. But now apply exactly the same approach to culture creation. So design thinking applied to culture creation, you need to prototype. Those best practices, those proof points are the prototypes that build confidence inside the organization that what you're doing is the right thing to do. So to believe that we can build culture inside an organization just by talking about design and expecting people to understand us and then trust us is very naive. Why don't we use our tools, design thinking and the ability to prototype to prove the point of design and design thinking. And I, and I know through running the awards programs, people say, oh, well, what are the awards programs about? And I basically say, I've worked out how to industrialize recognition. And it helps to that point there. Somebody who doesn't quite fully understand or you're not seeing that return come through from the, from the platform that's been built, that recognition that peers believe that our organization is doing well is really critical. Uh, look, I, I've been always a strong believer in, uh, in awards uh, because you're perfectly right. Often companies, especially at the beginning, they struggle to recognize something good that is happening within the company. It's just human nature. And so they need external entities that act, act, act as mirrors to recognize what's going on inside the company. You know, they're like, wait a second, are we winning all those awards? You know, the peers of my design organization are recognizing that what we do as a company is good. And, and then, you know, the awards is one dimension. The other one is the media, you know, the media telling your story. And you as a company are like, wait a second, that's, we did that. That's amazing. We did that. And, and so it, it's, it's very powerful. And unfortunately, even many designers underestimate the power of these external recognitions and if you understand that your role as a designer in a company where design is not yet established is the one of building culture, you will immediately recognize the value of these external endorsers that are the awards, that are the, you know, the media recognition and, 
and then so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's extremely powerful. Yeah, and I think when, when I was designing the awards process, I wanted to make sure that we were recognising the commissioners who had had courage to inquire as much as the courage of the people who were creating. And I know that that's that, that you know, driving dynamic that they both have a courage moment and celebrating both entities on an equal platform is such an important thing because that builds up their confidence. They may have different values and most likely they have got different values, but they now feel included in the conversation. And that's been beautiful to go see that that proposition has, has worked and has helped so many people. Mara, look, I, I feel absolutely privileged to have 40 minutes of your time to go and talk here. I'm sure the listeners are too. I want to go bring this conversation to a, to a close because I'm sure there's going to be other ones that we have. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, really.